welcome to Things in Jars, a podcast about oddities, curiosities, and all the weird and wonderful stuff that dwells in museum stores. I'm Melissa. And I'm Poppy, and we're both curators, here to take you behind the scenes of the museum with us as we explore cool artefacts and answer your questions about what it's really like to work in a museum. In this week's episode, we are going to be talking all about monsters. We'll be bringing you tales of supernatural creatures, fantastic beasts, and maybe even where to find them. And then at the end of the episode, we'll be doing our weekly item spotlight. And Melissa has chosen this week. So what have you got for us? I'm going to be talking about a painting of one of the largest stone circles in the UK, which is called Longmeg and Her Daughters. Stay tuned to the end of the episode to find out more. Before we get into the rest of the episode, we'd just like to clarify that opinions expressed in this show are our own and Things in Jars is not affiliated with the museum in which we work, although we will be referring a lot to its wonderful collection. So both Poppy and I agreed that the best place to start with this episode would be to talk about one of the treasures of the collection that we work with at Wordsworth Grasmere because it is one of the best examples of a monster related object that we could ever find and it's one of the most famous in the world as well and this is a first edition of Mary Shelley's famous novel Frankenstein. So this was published in 1818 And we are very lucky to have the first edition, so the very first version of the story that appeared in print on the shelves in our reading room library. What's really interesting about the story of Frankenstein is actually how the story came to be as well. In the summer of 1816, Mary Shelley was visiting Lord Byron at the Villa Diodati by Lake Geneva, and she was joined by Percy Shelley, Lord Byron's physician, John Polidori and Claire Clement, who was Mary's stepsister. And as the weather was consistently cold and horrible, they would frequently stay inside. And one night, Byron proposed that they each write a ghost story. And Mary wasn't straight away able to think of one until the discussions turned to the concept of the principle of life and the possibility of things being brought back from the dead and corpses being reanimated. That night, Mary was unable to sleep. And then when she did fall asleep, she dreamt of this strange story about animating a corpse and bringing something back to life. And that gave her the idea for the story of Frankenstein. And so that ghost story competition ultimately resulted in one of the most famous monster stories in the world. And it still is. However, Frankenstein wasn't the only story that was inspired during that fateful night at the Villa Diodati. Because also in the collection at Wordsworth Grasmere, we have another published work, which was written by John Polidori, who was also there that night. He was Byron's physician. And he too was inspired to write a tale of horror. And John Polidori wrote The Vampire, a tale which was first published in 1819. So just a year after Mary Shelley's Frankenstein was published. And this is often viewed as the first vampire story written in English and is considered to go on to influence 
Bram Stoker's Dracula, for example, and eventually the whole vampire genre. So it was the beginnings of the kind of modern concept of the vampire, if you like. So the plot of the vampire, just briefly, is as follows. So Aubrey, a young English gentleman, meets Lord Riven, who is a man of mysterious origins new to London society. And they end up taking a trip together to Rome. But after Riven seduces the daughter of a mutual acquaintance, they part ways. Aubrey then travels to Greece and is attracted to an innkeeper's daughter who tells him of the legend of the vampire. Riven arrives on the scene and, strangely enough, the innkeeper's daughter is then killed by a vampire. Aubrey then travels with Riven again, but Riven is attacked by bandits and mortally wounded. But before he dies, Riven makes Aubrey swear an oath that he will not mention Riven's death or anything about him for a year and a day. Aubrey goes back to London and is then very surprised when Riven appears soon after, because, you know, he's supposed to be dead. However, Aubrey does not break his oath, but then when Riven starts to seduce Aubrey's sister, he starts to have a nervous breakdown, which you can't really blame him for. And constantly he's reminded, don't break your oath, don't break your oath. So Riven and Aubrey's sister then marry on the day that the oath ends, so a year and a day later. And Aubrey writes a letter to his sister to reveal the terrible truth about Riven, but it arrives too late, and on the wedding night, she is discovered to be dead and drained of blood, and Riven has vanished. And the final lines are very dramatic. They are, The guardians hastened to protect Miss Aubrey, but when they arrived, it was too late. Lord Riven had disappeared, and Aubrey's sister had glutted the thirst of a vampire! Oh. Vampires in capitals with an exclamation mark. Amazing. In comparison to Frankenstein, it's one of the lesser known published pieces that was created after that night. But it is quite amazing how Frankenstein, which is, well, you know, it's, it's one of the most famous stories ever written. And then also a story about a vampire, which then went on to shape the modern perception of vampires. And one of the most famous vampire stories ever written was the result of that one night that one night of that ghost story competition imagine if that night hadn't happened or imagine if the summer that summer had just been really blindingly hot and they'd been outside and swimming and whatever we might not have vampire we might not have twilight some people would be glad of that but you know just just think (laughs) yeah i'm sure some people would be glad of that when you think of dracula and how influential that is and the fact that that may have taken its turn from Polidori's story. And actually, interestingly, when it was first published, a lot of people thought Byron had actually written it. Because I think actually, by mistake, when it came out, it was attributed to Byron. So it came out with his name attached to it. And also a lot of people, or it's 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 widely accepted that the character of Lord Riven was based on Byron. Oh, because Byron was... <laughs> A serial womanizer. And yeah. Yeah. Mad, bad, and dangerous to know. Exactly. So there we go. Yeah, I I thought that would be a nice one to share. Obviously, Frankenstein goes without saying, but John Polidori's The Vampire A Tale is also a good story. It's interesting that you brought that one up because one of the things that I'd found and didn't know if it would be quite right for the topic this week was a vampire slaying kit from the Royal Armouries. And apparently they were really popular in Victorian times. I guess they were all feared of 
Polidori's monster actually being among them in society and, and seducing their daughters and drinking their blood and that kind of thing. But it's a wooden box and inside there are four different varieties of steak. A mallet for hammering in your steak. There's a rosary. There is a pistol. And there's also a Bible verse, I think. So everything you could possibly need to fend off people like Mr. Riven. So I thought that was quite cool. I also saw that vampire kit as well in the Royal Armouries collection. And it's, I mean, it looks quite legit. Like it looks like something out of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's got everything one would need. But in an article that I read about it by a curator at the Royal Armouries Museum, they actually did an investigation on it to see if it would be like a legitimate real kit. And apparently it could not have existed until the 1950s at the earliest. Oh, what? Really? Yeah, because it seemed to be based on sort of more modern films. Oh. And because it, the kit was inspired by things that were depicted in the films rather than right. stories and folklore. Well, good to know. <laughs> Vampire slaying kit. I know, isn't it great? So I thought a little bit outside the box. I went a bit broader than just our collection and I have gone with a local legend, if you will. And the only reason I know about this legend is because I went to see an exhibition at Lakeland Arts in probably early 2018 and they had a clip from the Westmoreland Gazette and it had this monster in it. Have you heard of the Pike of Windermere? Yes, I think so. Yeah. For those of you who aren't familiar with the Lake District, uh, Lake Windermere is the largest lake in England. It's freshwater, of course, and it's home to a lot of fish, including pike, char, trout, and perch, I think is another one. And people who go wild swimming there, which is a lot of people, are genuinely nervous about the pike because pike are terrifying. Kill a pike or no. Pike in general are not something you want to come up against under the water. They are big, first off. They have teeth for another thing. And the way that they seek their prey is they like hide in reeds and then they attack at high speed. Truly, pike are terrifying. So a man called Cliff Twemlow, I really hope I'm saying that right, in the 80s he wrote a book about the killer pike of Windermere and this was a man-eating pike that was just going about attacking people. Before long he tried to make a film of his book and he did get quite far with it. He, I think he was crowdfunding for money but he had managed to get Joan Collins to play the lead and they'd built this massive animatronic pike with killer jaws. It was like 12 foot long or something like that. And Joan Collins came to do a press thing in Windermere. And on the day, they like put this massive fake pike in Windermere Lake and it looks pretty dodgy. I mean, it was the 80s. It's not the most... <laughs> Nowadays, it probably wouldn't cut the mustard. But So they put it in the lake and then suddenly it starts to malfunction and its jaws won't open as they were meant to for this shot. So poor Joan Collins has to stick her head in between the jaws, like, while trying to hold them open. It's a great photo, and that was the photo I saw in the newspaper. Shortly after that, they ran out of money for the film. It, it never really got off the ground. What a shame. I know. But <laughs> the model of the pike went over to Japan, because it was apparently, I think it's in some sort of tech expo there, and a replica of the model of the pike can still be seen, apparently, 
to this day in the Lowood Water Sports Centre in Windermere. And I would really like to go and see it one day because I did not know this. So there you go. The killer pike of Windermere. I don't know if this is the same creature as Bonessi, which is also supposedly a thing. It's like the Lake District's version of the Loch Ness Monster. Who knows if they are one and the same, but you should all know about the killer pike. We should all know. We take that as a warning. We'll never dip our toe into Lake Windermere again without thinking of the killer pike. So did you have something else from the collection that you wanted to share? I did. I did. And this is all linking together really nicely because mine also is a water-based tale that, yeah, that you will be very familiar with when I tell you what it is. There is a particular character in this tale that I just think... (gasps) I'm thinking, is it Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner? Yes! But who's the monster? She's she's not a monster, Uh, per se. I know you. Uh, Yeah, you know me. She's a supernatural being. And she's quite monstrous in the way that she is depicted. And indeed, in the way that she behaves. So this is... The poem, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, which is by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. It's one of his most famous poems and it was published in 1798. And we have several copies of this poem in Wordsworth Grasmere's collection. And there are some fantastic illustrations of the poem, which I will get onto in a bit. But before I can get to the monster part, I just better give you a quick run through of the story of the poem so you kind of understand where the monster comes into play. So this poem begins by introducing an ancient mariner who stops a wedding guest from attending a nearby celebration and starts to tell him the story of a ship. So the mariner's story begins with the ship leaving harbour and sailing southward and a great wind blows the ship further towards the South Pole and the crew are overawed by snow and the freezing cold and giant icebergs, and they become quite afraid of the sort of lifelessness of the South Pole. And then an albatross appears and kind of breaks this strange lifelessness, and the sailors think that the albatross is a good omen as a new wind rises up and moves the ship on. And the albatross comes back day after day, And they're very happy to see it. But then one day the wind dies down and they, for some reason, decide it's the bird's fault. (laughs) Makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. And so the mariner shoots and kills the albatross with his crossbow. And at first they feel this is a good thing because the fog clears, the wind returns. But then shortly afterwards, the wind ceases completely again and they become trapped in the middle of this utterly calm sea, completely unable to move. And so they're stuck there for days and days and the mariner and his fellow sailors are becoming very, very thirsty. And this is where the very famous line from the poem, water, water everywhere, not any drop to drink, comes into play, which a lot of people might have heard of or heard of a similar phrase. And so the crew decides to hang the albatross around the mariner's neck after dreaming that an angry spirit has followed them from the South Pole and they do this in kind of an act of repentance And the men grow so thirsty, they cannot even speak. And they are near death by this point. And then the mariner sees what he believes is a ship approaching. And he bites his own arm to drink 
his blood to alert the crew because he thinks that they're going to be rescued. But then the joy fades quickly as he realises that the ship is sailing without wind and it is not any normal ship. It's a ghost ship and it's approaching. And this is where one of my fave characters comes in. So what better way to introduce her than just to read the poem, the part where she comes in. Alas, thought I, and my heart beat loud, how fast she nears and nears. Are those her sails that glance in the sun like restless gossamers? Are those her ribs through which the sun did peer as through a grate? And is that woman all her crew? And is that a death? And are there two? Is death that woman's mate? Her lips were red, her looks were free, her locks were yellow as gold. Her skin was white as leprosy, the nightmare life in death was she, who thicks man's blood with cold. The naked hulk alongside came, and the twain were casting dice. The game is done, I've won, I've won, quoth she, and whistles thrice. (gasps) So, this is life in death, and she is aboard the ghost ship that comes alongside the other ship, and life in death is playing a game of dice with death and they are gambling for the lives of the sailors and the mariner. Life in death seems to win. She wins the life of the mariner and death wins the life of the sailors who begin to die one by one. And then the mariner is trapped between life and death, doomed to suffer forever. I love the way that she is depicted as being, you know, a fate worse than death, literally a fate worse than death in this situation because the sailors kind of have this release and the mariner yet is trapped there. She's terrifying. She is terrifying. She's scary. She really is. And there are a lot of artworks of the, the poem as a whole, but there's one particularly of her specifically by Mervyn Peake, who is most famous, you might have heard of him, for writing the Gormenghast fantasy series. But in 1943, he created this close-up of her face. And she is a she's a skeleton but her skull is kind of strangely animated by these big black eyes and these big lips and her face is framed by this thick yellow hair and she's kind of like resting her chin on her hands, like looking at you in this really sassy way. I find that portrayal of her really fascinating. And I should say for everyone to finish up the story, the mariner is eventually able to free himself when he looks into the water and he sees some water snakes. Despite previously thinking they were horrid creatures, he kind of recognises the beauty of them and realises all creatures must be treated with respect and the albatross falls from his neck and he is able to find his way back to land and the poem ends with him travelling from land to land, telling his tale to warn people that they must respect nature and leaves the wedding guest a sad and wiser man. Can you imagine if you were that wedding guest and you were just grabbed by this man and he was like, let me tell you. But yeah, that is Life and Death. And I went to a Halloween party dressed as her once. In fact, it was Poppy's Halloween party in Poppy's house. And the costume was great. That was a really good choice. I hadn't, that hadn't crossed my mind at all. I like Had you not? I thought, no. I thought you would read me like a book. I thought you would know straight away that I was going to talk about that. I think I was just so obstinate about there being nothing in the collection apart from Frankenstein. <laughs> 
So what else did you find out there in the world, Poppy? What other monsters? Well, there seems to be an unspoken theme here because we're only going to have time for one more. Um, But I had two more nautical themed monsters. So we've gone, we are just on that watery wavelength. But I'll talk about the sea monsters that I found on some British Library maps because it's quite quick. There's not a lot to say really other than they're just they're just amusing. So I've picked a few faves. So from at least the 1500s as travel began to really take off and people were going all around the world further than they'd ever been before, maps were being created to chart the world um, but also the seas and the seas represented an unknown. They were shifting, they were changing, they could be very dangerous. The seas could do a lot of damage, so they did represent this kind of fear and this uncertainty. And I'm guessing the first tales of sea monsters must have come from folklore, but sea monsters kind of became the embodiment of these fears of the sea and what lurked beneath. So on these early maps, you can see this fantastic array of creatures, and they did try and be scientific about sea monsters in the sense that monsters that were included in early maps would always be included in later versions as well because that was kind of taken as gospel that's that monster must chart him (laughs) everywhere but cartographers did also add other whimsical creatures as well one early belief was that there was an equivalent in the sea for every animal that walked on land so the first monster is a sea pig the sea pig is truly a sight to behold he's got the body of a fish covered in scales, with kind of quills on his back, and three eyes in his sides, and then the head of a pig with a really long curly snout. So, oh, and he's got webbed feet as well. I should probably add that. Lots of different pieces contribute to this animal. Apparently a sea pig today is a kind of cucumber, a kind of sea cucumber, so it's not completely false. And sea lions are also a recognised animal today, and that came from the early belief that there was an equivalent for animals on land. One of my personal favourites is a sea monster that has the head of a dragon with really long rabbit ears, kind of cute, takes the fear out of it. And another classic example is a monster that was thought to lurk around the seas of Scandinavia, who has the head and body of a man, hooves of a horse, and a kind of fishy, dragony tail thing. And he's also playing a vial, just hanging out in the seas, playing some sweet music. And... There are also ships charted in the same waters around him and the waters seem fairly calm. So that was supposed to signify that this monster in particular was not thought to be a threat. But the more scary they were seen to be, the more white surf is thrown up around the monsters on the map. Some of these monsters are absolutely roiling in surf. So they must have been very, very scary. (laughs) I'm looking right now at a picture of two supposedly whales. They don't look at all like whales to me. They're just massive disembodied fish heads in the water with these really pointy fangs and they've got tubes on the top of their heads that are spurting out streams of water. And one of them also has like these whiskery things coming out of its forehead. Um, But they're supposed to be whales and they are attacking a ship. And the people on the ship are throwing in barrels to try and fend off these whales. And there's also a guy standing right on the prow with a trumpet playing into the water to, I guess, attack them with music or something, which seems like a totally solid strategy. But all the while, the sea around the boat is very wild and churned up. And it is, it's fearsome. You would, if you were a medieval traveller, you'd take one look at that picture and you would find a lovely new 
stretch of water to cross instead. You would not be getting into that situation lightly. So yeah, they're just they're just kind of a bit bonkers. Well worth a Google if you fancy some amusement. So that's interesting, isn't it? How we've managed, apart from the vampire, how all of our stories have had watery themes. Interesting. There aren't too many land monsters, though. Like, I mean, Frankenstein, yes, vampires, kind of. It depends what you consider a monster to be. Like, museum kind of fantastical monsters, in my mind, are always watery. For this week's item spotlight, I would like to talk about a watercolour which was created by Lady Mary Lowther, who lived from 1738 to 1824, and she created this particular watercolour in 1766. And this is a watercolour of Long Meg and her daughters, which is a Bronze Age stone circle near Penrith in Cumbria, which is in the northwest of England. The story behind this stone circle is, like many stone circles, quite a mysterious one, but also folklore and myth has a huge part to play. Long Meg and her daughters consist of 59 megalithic stones. However, records from the early 17th century suggest that there were as many as 77 megaliths at the time, which is interesting as on Lady Mary's painting, she has written an inscription that notes there are 73 at the time where she paints it. So we've lost a few stones between now and then. Long Meg is the tallest and most famous stone in the circle and faces towards the southwest where the midwinter sun would have set and it is engraved with mysterious symbols including cup and ring marks, a spiral and rings of circles. And local legend claims that Long Meg was a witch who with her daughters were turned to stone by the Scottish wizard Michael Scott as they dance wildly on the moor. So they are, supposedly, the stones are supposedly Long Meg and her daughters, frozen. So the circle is supposedly endowed with magic so that it is impossible to count the same number of stones twice. But if you do manage to count them, then the spell will be broken and the witches will be free. That is the legend of the stone circle, but the painting itself, it doesn't convey anything of this sorcery. It's actually pretty beautiful. It kind of shows the stone circle a little bit in the distance and it's the stones are sort of illuminated by this soft light in the centre, but then in the background towards the Lake District Mountains, you can see the clouds gathering and, and showers falling. So it's this beautiful sort of weatherscape over the, the stone circle. And it's just really beautiful. And I remember seeing this in... I should have said, this is in our collection that we work with at Wordsworth Grasmere. And I remember seeing this and being kind of enchanted by the name. And then my enchantment only increased upon discovering the story behind it. So that is Lady Mary Lowther's watercolour of Long Meg and her daughters. And you can go and visit the Stone Circle as well if you wanted. Yeah, and count the stones. Yeah, count the stones for yourself and see if you can break the spell. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you very much, as always, for listening. We really hope you enjoyed it. 
stay tuned for next week's episode when we will be looking out for museum objects that reveal tales of devious crimes. In the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram at Things in Jazz Podcast and on Twitter at Things in Jazz Pod. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a rating or a review. It really helps us to grow our platform and reach new people, and we really appreciate it. I'm Melissa. And I'm Poppy. Thank you very much for listening. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>